In Puerto Rico, there's adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. Get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico and that remind you why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island, it becomes a part of you. No passports required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this weekend's edition of SYSK Selects. Uh, this is Chuck here. I picked out Revisionist History uh, basically because it was just a pretty darn good episode, from my recollection. Um, but, of course, I didn't go back and listen to it, because why would I do that to myself? But I'd love for you to. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant with his uh, Nazi soda. What? Your orange Fanta. (laughs) That's not exactly true. No, okay. Well, let's talk about this, because this is a pretty good podcast or episode to discuss this, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. Revisionist history, I guess. So. Yeah. We're talking revisionist history. And for the time being, we're talking about the origin of Orange Fanta, because there is a rumor out there yeah. that Orange Fanta is a Nazi soda, that it was created right. by the Nazis. Yeah. That isn't quite true. Uh, like, there are Nazi products like Hugo Boss, yeah. Volkswagen. Yep. Siemens, IBM. Mercedes, I think, is one, too? No. No? Mercedes wasn't. Well, Volkswagen, definitely, the Beetle was created to look like the SS helmet, from what I understand. Yeah, but uh, Fanta Orange was created by a Coke employee in Nazi Germany. Coca-Cola Germany. Um, <laughs> which was supposedly, well, that was the name of the oh, okay. company. I got you. And it, it was supposedly cut off from... It's parent company during the war. Yeah, so they didn't have the supplies they needed to make uh, Coke. So this guy was uh, kind of mixed together a potion and created Fanta Orange. Yeah. Um, he went out back and dug up a bunch yeah. of roots and <laughs> squeezed a redheaded kid. And but Fanta apparently <laughs> it wasn't like he wasn't a member of the Nazi party and it wasn't created for Nazis, but it was enjoyed by Nazis. Okay, so that's where I think... You can reasonably call it a Nazi drink. Like, <laughs> they loved it, it. Was, it was born out of the the Nazi regime in Germany uh, as a result of, directly, because Coca-Cola dried yeah, up sure. because of the embargo on the Nazi regime. Yeah, Hitler loved Coke, too, by the way. Did he? Yeah, um, but I wouldn't put it in the category of like Nazi products like Volkswagen and Hugo Boss. And so Coca-Cola, the way it has, has it spelled out, and I mean, it depends. Like this story is about as good as Coca-Cola can come off looking, yeah. While still admitting that Fanta is a Coke product that was created in Nazi Germany, but basically their their spiel is that you know Coke was cut off. Their spiel. From, <laughs> their spiegel was that yeah. um, Coke was cut off. Coke Germany 
was cut off from the parent company yeah. because Coke wasn't doing business. Right. And then um, as a result of the war ending, Coke was like, wow, this did really well. Come back into the fold. Yeah, yeah. And we'll just keep selling Fanta. And and way to go for you know keeping the company alive in the face of these Nazi war pigs. Yeah. Um, that's apparently like the company line. I don't know. Yeah. It could be revisionist history. There are some American companies that definitely did business illegally in oh, Nazi yeah. Germany. Most prominent among them is IBM, yeah. who literally created not only the machines, but also the programs to tally the people in concentration camps. Yeah, that is not revisionist history. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah. But I just, I, I didn't even know when I brought this drink in here that it would be such a great setup for the show. Yeah. I just enjoy Fanta Orange. It turned out pretty well. Yeah. So, Chuck. Yeah. There's this really great article that Conger wrote called How Revisionist History Works. I sent her an email today. Tell her how good it was. I mean, it is good. And she ignored me. It's a top-notch <laughs> top article. And she starts out with a pretty great intro that I don't feel can be much improved on because it Agreed. demonstrates this whole thing pretty well. Yeah. Conger talks about uh, George Washington, how as a little boy, mm-hmm. uh, he was maybe a little aggressive and he got a hold of an axe and... Uh, his father's ex, I believe. And he gave a cherry tree 40 wax. Mm-hmm. Then when he saw what he had done, he gave it another 41 and ended up chopping down the cherry tree. Yeah. I may have mixed legends here. Lizzie Borden. With the- <laughs> uh, and when his father came out and saw that he had just chopped down a cherry tree, a perfectly good money-producing cher- cherry tree, because mm-hmm. those things were like gold back then. Yeah. He said, Georgie, what did you do? Did you cut this down? And George Washington looked at the axe, looked at the tree, looked at his father, looked at his feet, thought about maybe a sandwich later. So I'm going to be present one day. Shut up. Yeah. And he said, "I so I should probably like be like every other president and not tell a lie. Right. Instead, tell the truth because that's what our presidents do. And he sure. said, Father, I cannot tell a lie. I did chop down this cherry tree. What are you going to do about it? I never understood the point of that story. Was it that he was honest? Yes. Okay. Honest, forthright, upstanding, was willing to accept the heat for uh, what he'd done. He was accountable. There's a lot of stuff wrapped up in just that one little fable. Good with an axe. <laughs> exactly. You know? Handy. His dad had cherry trees, so yeah. he you know, came from a wealthy background. Wrong. But uh, the problem is, is all of it's made up. Yeah. And we've talked about this before. I don't remember what... what I think it was maybe the how much money is there in the world. We talked about how Washington's biographer made up a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, remember him throwing a silver dollar all the way across the Potomac? And we oh, were saying, yeah. like, the problem is there weren't silver dollars back when Washington was younger. And I've seen the Potomac. That's impossible. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. But the point is, Mason Weems, uh, Mason Locke Weems, who was Washington's early biographer, just made up a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And what is kind of a black eye or egg on the face of historians for a, a century or so that followed, they just kind of bought these things hook, line, and sinker. Sure. And it actually, the cherry tree story was in our textbooks. This total fable, completely made up fable, yeah. was told to school children as the truth. I bet it still is in some classrooms. In the, maybe in the yeah. Ozarks. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but uh, typically outside, it has been revised. Right. Because they found out, I think in 2008, that um, there were no cherry trees on Washington's family childhood home. Right. So, ergo. He cut them all down. He, right, exactly. But there was not even evidence of cut down cherry trees. Right. So they had to go back and say, hey, 
we need to take this out of the textbooks. They did, and nobody really was bothered by it. Yeah, it's pretty minor. It is. It's it's, it's not like saying Christopher Columbus discovered America and proved the world wasn't round and didn't commit mass genocide and torture and rape people, right? Yeah, that he and his men didn't sharpen their knives on the skulls of live Indians they encountered. Yeah, it's amazing to me that we still have Columbus Day when when we know the deal now. No one mentioned it. Well, I think people are starting to pull their heads from their butts. Yeah, I feel like this year marked the... The true beginning of the end for Columbus Day. I do not think it's going to be around much longer. It shouldn't be. It's just too, history is, that man is too complicated. Yeah. And he did too many horrific things, even culturally relativistically. Yeah. He did horrible things, and I feel like he's not going to be honored too too far from now. Yeah. My friend uh, Jerry in Portland is a school teacher, and uh, there was a thing going around Facebook about Columbus, and I shared it, of course, and Jerry uh, said, you know, I, I've... The past three years, I've been able to teach this version. So there's at least like 180 kids in Portland that are now like scarred for life right. with the truth. And I was like, man, that's great. It's about how sad is it you even have to say this version instead of real history. Right. You know? Right. Well, I mean, that's part of the problem is history, as they figured out in maybe the, uh, I think, late 19th, early 20th century, it's objective or subjective. Yeah. It's not objective. Yes. And people thought that it was and that it just kind of history happened. You talked about it and that was that. Like you, there were, it was just history. Yeah. It wasn't continuous and like once something happened, it happened. And then once it was written down, that's how it was. Right. It, it was, it's a subjective, ever evolving thing. And we figured it out and we'll talk about when we figured it out. But first, um, I mean, we're, what we're talking about overall, this idea that history is meant to be modified as new facts come to light, as yeah. attitudes change, um, it is called revisionism, and it's not necessarily a dirty word. Yeah, we'll get into that. It definitely has a negative connotation when you say, well, that's revisionist history. Exactly. Uh, and that's one lens to, to look at revisionist history through. Yeah, let's talk about the three um, major parts of revisionist history. Uh, I think, well, this is the three ways you can look at revisionist history. Yeah, one is a uh, theoretical perspective, basically let's say looking at it through the lens of uh, African Americans instead of old white men or right. women or, you know, any other like minority. That's one example. That's like, uh, you know, when people say like, get on the right side of history. Yeah. That's basically somebody being aware that there is a, a cultural, social lens of revisionism. Sure. That, you know, what's going on is going to change. The attitude towards something is going to change and you're going to look like a pretty horrible person when there's a picture of you 50 years from now holding a sign that's... Does that Columbus? Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the other is, or one of the others is fact-checking. Um, that's basically just the get-it-right lens. Yeah, like new facts come to life. And yeah. You change the history books. And finally, the negative perspective um, that uh, sees revisionism as an effort to falsify or skew things for, you know, usually political motives. Right. You know? Let's talk about one of those. Conger gives another good example of like all three of these wrapped up in one guy, one Thomas Jefferson. Yeah. So factually, Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States. Yep. He wrote the Constitution. Yeah. Wrote the Declaration of Independence like from word A to Z. Yes. Yes, you're right. Might have had some help. I don't know. I think other people were revised this history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I mean, yes, he, he was a, a founding father. There's a lot of stuff that we know for a fact Jefferson did, right? Sure. But there's also other stuff. Um, 
in particular that he had a slave with who who was also his mistress, yeah. and her name was Sally Hemings. That's right. And he had children with her. And for many, many years, this was viewed by negative revisionists as just a dirty rumor. Yeah, which is incredibly insulting. It is. To say, because they were in love. Yeah. Well, yeah, Nick Nolte. You know, it wasn't like, oh, he just, you know, had his way with his slaves. Like, he was in love with Sally Hemings. Okay. And it's very insulting to say that that's a blight on America that our president would stoop so low as to be in love with a black woman. Right, exactly. You know? Exactly. So the people who looked at this through the negative view of revisionism. Jerks. That it was meant to sully. Yeah. We're on the wrong side of history. Agreed. So in uh, the late 1990s, I think maybe 1997, mm-hmm. I don't remember, um, incontrovertible DNA evidence yeah. showed that Sally Hemings and Thomas Jefferson had children together. They did it. More than one. Yeah. Yes, which does imply that they did it. They did it a bunch. Um, <laughs> yeah, because the first time, I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, so with that, we have uh, these three different lenses coming into play. You have the social theoretical lens. Sure. Which is, okay, well, now we can go back and look at history and say, um, maybe Jefferson wasn't the only one to have a slave mistress. Right. Maybe... It- there was a lot of this stuff going on, and uh, maybe black folks and white folks were commingling more than we thought. Right, exactly. Maybe at some point along the, t- the way, we, um, we meaning like the mid mid twentieth century people yeah. of America, put our own racist hangups on the uh, people before, who right. came before during this era, and we changed history unwittingly. It changed it back with this fact that came to life. Yes. Then there was the fact. Yeah. Version. Yeah, which is like, maybe this is something we should put in textbooks. Right. You know? Or, more to the point, now we can't not put this in textbooks. Yeah, or the very least biographies. Sure. But textbooks too, come on. Right. Um, and then there's the third one, the negative revisionism, which kind of was um, dispelled when this incontrovertible DNA evidence came to light. Yeah. Because up to that point, you could be like, no, no, no. And then once the DNA came out, it was like, yes, yes. 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 Yeah. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for time tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on. Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. So historians, they have... uh 
Connor compares them to journalists, which is, I think, pretty spot on. There's a responsibility there to get it right and to not use your own skewed perspective. Like, you know, take the Civil War. If you still today, if you go out in the sticks of Georgia and ask someone about the Civil War, they're probably going to have some uh, opinion. Yeah, <laughs> that may not be quite right. I don't think. I don't know if people up north even care about that stuff anymore. I think the south has all the hang-ups. Sure. Because we lost. They were the ones, yeah, the losers and the ones who wanted to secede. Yeah. Up north, it's just like, what happened? But it's amazing that, like, this many years later, there's still that skewed political perspective because of your personal beliefs in history, maybe family history. Right. You know? Yeah. So let's talk about modern revisionism, which pretty much started after World War I when... The onus was put on historians to suss it out and say, like, all right, World War One happened, so that happened. Uh, we now have an obligation to record this and teach the world about it. But there were a lot of different opinions about it. Right. Which makes it tough. And the, the term revisionist history was actually coined a couple decades before World War One by Marxists who were grappling with um, whether or not the revolution was inevitable yeah. And how to put that down in the history books. And revisionism was coined around this this time by those people. But it really didn't come into play worldwide until after World War One. Yeah. And at this time, scholars started to realize that this is when people figured out history is objective. Like, seriously, up to this point... Subjective, you mean? Yes, thank you. <laughs> I don't know why I can't get those straight today. But up to this point, historians... Uh, mainstream historians overall yeah. typically believe that like history was objective. Yeah. And now something like World War I happened with all the world involved. Everyone had a stake in it because what is history besides um, looking good? Sure. You know, no one wants to look bad in the history books. Right. Or so, making someone look bad. Sure. On purpose. Right. Um, and historians started to realize, like, whoa, 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 like, it's kind of up to us what goes in the history books. And this is such a complicated, complex event that w- maybe history is an objective. Yeah. In uh, 1931, a, um, a speech was given at the American Historical Association yeah. by President Carl Becca. Mm-hmm. And he was kind of the first guy to really come out in public and say, you know what? It's a living, evolving thing. It is very much subjective, and it's uh, subjective because it's humans' memory, basically, yeah, telling which is the story. Definitely fallible. Yeah, or their perspective as individuals, uh, and like I said, politics is usually one of the big reasons how mm. it gets skewed. But not just politics, nationalism. Yeah. Everybody wants their country to be the winner or look like the good guy or what have you. Um, but yeah, it, Becker was the first to say. It's subjective, and therefore it's subject to revision. Yeah. And World War One was the thing that kicked it off. Like we said, the Treaty of Versailles yeah. really, really strongly punished Germany. Sure. Redrew its boundaries and basically said, Germany, you're responsible for World War One. You guys were the aggressor, and everybody else was reacting. And then as time wore on, yeah. um, new documents were released that showed that, no, it wasn't just Germany. There were a lot of other factors involved, including... 
among the Allies that contributed directly to the beginning of World War One. Yeah. And Germany was kind of punished unfairly. So in 1925, the League of Nations basically said, hey, we need some sort of guidelines for writing historical textbooks. And they came up with that. And from that point on, revisionism was born. And then in 1931, Carl Becker said, yeah, here in America, we agree. Right. Uh, history is subjective and, and it can be revised. Yeah, and declassification of documents is a big way that uh, things can be revised because right. – you know, if you don't have, it's not just someone's opinion. If if you don't have actual documentation and like peer reviewed stuff, then you can't revise history. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, so that brings us to World War Two, when uh, what is called the Age of Historical Consensus officially began. Um, and I get the idea that that was just when people sort of historians banded together a little bit more than ever before. Yeah, pl- you get that feeling. They, yeah, there was a lot of um, patriotism, nationalism. Yeah, and basically everybody said, if there's anything that happened in World War Two, yeah, it's that the U.S. emerged victorious. Yeah, and saved the world. Jingoism, perhaps. Yeah, very much so. Toby but Keith. this is among historians. Yeah, and you know, if all historians basically are on the same page that America is awesome and kicks ass then that's what the history books are going to reflect. Yeah, and that held pretty strong until the 1960s, which, as anyone who knows anything about American history knows, it was a pretty tumultuous time. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a few things, the Vietnam War, uh, civil rights movement, feminist movement, uh, globalization, the Cold War, they all combined to basically <laughs> quell that nationalism a little bit, maybe? Yeah, for sure. I mean, all that's of a sudden, kindly. the U.S. went from this... Sunny, happy, suburban, white picket fence, Nazi butt-kicking country yeah. to one that was coming apart at the seams internally. And yeah. the historians of the time of the 60s said, like, wait a minute. If history is this ever-evolving um, dialogue that's able to be revised, how are we going to document this? And what they figured out very wisely was, well, we need to tell everybody's story. Yeah, through it, four lenses. It, yeah, well, at least. Yeah. I, I think six maybe emerged from the 60s that basically history became more inclusive. It wasn't just about the leaders anymore. It wasn't just about how great America was. It was the whole picture. That's what historians strove to, to get to. Right. Uh, the, the four major lenses from the 60s on uh, were political, economic, racial, and sexual. That's four. It's not six. <laughs> you should make two more up. <laughs> we could probably come up with a couple. Yeah. That aren't like fully covered here. We'll work on that. Okay. Uh, political ends, though, um, obviously has to do with foreign policy, uh, nationalism. Um, in the 1960s, uh, I believe you already mentioned the Marxist revisionism uh, outlined more of a struggle between the classes and maybe took an approach that wasn't like... It gave the lower classes a little bit more their due. Right. It wasn't just like um, just because somebody was a prominent leader doesn't mean they were a great person necessarily. Right. Uh, and, yeah, that was a, a huge radical change, especially compared to that um, age of consensus among historians. Uh, the economic lens, uh, Charles A. Beard, a historian, had a pretty radical idea that, hey, the founding fathers were writing the Constitution to sort of look out for wealthy white dudes. Yeah. And I think he's probably right. Yeah, there was a, he wrote that in, I think, 1913, and it took until the tumulty of the 60s before anybody ever really, like, kind of championed it. Tumulty? 
I think that's right. Really? If I am a uh, descriptivist <laughs> at the at the moment, not just tumult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But doesn't tumulty run out, roll off the tongue a little more? Well, tumulty would be the adjective. Like, that was a very tumulty. No, that'd be tumultuous. I know. That's my point. <laughs> so, anyway, Beard's idea was that the framers of the Constitution said, hey, let's protect ourselves. Yeah. And the landowners who owed money to the framers basically led a revolution in 1800 that was led by the election of Thomas Jefferson. Right. And that's what we are we live in today. Yeah. But we may have had much more of an elite society. Yeah. Or basically we have an elite society now. Right. We just would have had had one for longer. Uh so the racial lens obviously uh strove to cast a light on minorities a little more that were largely ignored uh thanks to the civil rights movement um it gained some momentum. I remember being in school and not learning about Malcolm X or Huey P. Newton. Who? Yeah. I wasn't taught those things in classes Yeah, in high school. I had to read about them on my own afterward. College yeah. does a much, much better job, for sure. Right. But even, you know, and this was, I mean, this is a while ago for me. This was in the 80s. Do you remember I'd being, like to think it's gotten a little better. Do you remember when you learned, hopefully at least in high school, um, about the Native Americans, the plight of Native Americans in the U.S.? I don't remember, man. I remember ninth grade, finally taking a history class where they like spoke frankly about it, really? like your like your friend in Portland. And I don't remember my mind just being blown. Yeah, because I was like, well, wait a minute, what about everything I learned the last eight years? Like all that's just yeah. total what BS. Like it completely is contradicted by what you're saying. Yeah. Like, not only was this stuff like left out. I learned the opposite, you know? Yeah. That they basically just went away on their own because the white man came and they were like, oh, this place is yours. And I remember being in ninth grade just learning this like, wow. And that was a big eye-opener for me. I think that's probably why I got into history because I was like, yeah. this is pretty interesting stuff. You're like, there's more out there. Sure. I want to know like, yeah, the whole the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, under the racial lens, uh, uh, also now you could learn about dudes like the Tuskegee Airmen mm-hmm. or... Japanese internment camps, which I never heard of until we did that episode on it. <laughs> yeah, until three years ago. But um, that raises another good point, Chuck. Uh, with the Japanese internment camps, it wasn't in the the history books before, and then it comes out maybe in the nineties, I think, um, or it's put into the history books in the nineties. Yeah. And th- that kind of reflects why people struggle against revisionism, or some people do, because history is ultimately zero sum, right? If you put that in the history book, yeah. the, the Japanese plight of American, Japanese Americans mm-hmm. who were put into internment camps, their plight is honored yeah. just through recognition. Sure. Like this happened to you people, right. and now everybody knows about it. But at the same time, the U.S. government looks bad. Yeah, and reparations are like all of a sudden on the table. Right. And they don't want that. So it's impossible to shine a light on something and it not have almost always, I can't think of one instance, yeah. a, a also a, a negative impact on something else. Yeah. Because what is history again if it's not somebody screwing somebody else over? <laughs> is that all it is? Yeah. <laughs> I mean at least world history, political history. Yeah. Uh, and the final lens, of course, is the sexual lens, which uh, shone a light on women and said, hey, history is not just about old white men. Yeah. There were, there were a lot of ladies. Like, 
Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Sojourner Truth. And I think the only, like, the only black woman I ever remember reading about, of course, was Harriet Tubman. Yeah. It's like one person. Are you really? That's well, the only, uh, that's the only African American female in history right. that made any difference was Harriet Tubman. Right. And think about it. Like, the, the most recent one that's mentioned here is Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So apparently we ran out of producing great women in the, the early 20th century. Yeah. Where is the rest of them? So yeah. apparently we're still struggling with that sexual lens of uh, revisionist history. Yeah. I think, I think women are definitely still fighting that fight. Yeah, I saw a cool thing the other day on, uh, I think it went sort of viral, uh, where this woman uh, had her daughter, um, you know, like little girls play dress up and stuff, little boys do too, but um, instead of dressing the daughter up like, you know, I'm a Disney princess, um, she dressed her up like famous uh, women in history. Uh Uh-huh. And took pictures and just had a blast. And, uh, it's really neat. It's like a little photo series of this girl dressed up as all these, like, great women in history. Nice. And, uh, I don't know, it was a very cool, very cool thing to do. I feel like I saw that. Yeah, it, it was just a couple of weeks ago, so you probably didn't. Uh. Good for her is what I say. Yeah, good for her. Um, I guess now maybe is a good time to do a message break. Yeah, and, uh, afterward we're gonna get into, uh, correcting the facts, which is my favorite part. Ooh. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! Today's episode is brought to you by Altoids because, let's face it, unraveling the mysteries of the universe is tough work. But with Altoids, your breath will be stronger than a black hole's gravitational pull, more intense than an alien abduction, and more reliable than your phone's battery during a podcast marathon. When it comes to needing intense freshness, Altoids have you covered. Altoids are stronger than your favorite conspiracy theory, more intense than the latest true crime docuseries, and more reliable than a Bigfoot sighting. They're not just mints, they're curiously strong mints. Find Altoids in the checkout aisle. Grab your tin today. So, Chuckers. Yeah. Um, we're talking about revisionism uh, as a means of correcting the facts. Yeah. Like the game of telephone, the old adage. And that's basically what history was. You start with a story. Right. And it gets passed down orally. Uh, or maybe even it was written down. And it's just like a game of telephone. Things get mixed up. And in the end, you end up with what is probably not the way it really happened. Right, purple monkey dishwasher. Like, <laughs> like Pocahontas is her example. Yeah. About she had this, it was a great love story between Captain John Smith and Pocahontas in Jamestown. <laughs> so crazy. And Disney made a movie about it. It seems like I'm picking on Disney a lot. And it's, well, it's the same thing. Like, the, yeah. Disney took this, this idea and ran with it and created like a new, 
well, not a char- a new character, but yeah. created a character who fell in love with John Smith, and they had a wacky courtship and overcame all the odds. A and wacky courtship. Jamestown was safe. <laughs> I think he falls down at some point, maybe. And there's maybe a talking animal. Yeah, there was one problem with this though: is Pocahontas was 11 years old, and uh, James Smith was not a um, pederast. Well, pederast is exclusively with boys. Oh, is it? Mm-hmm. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. So I guess he'd be a pedophile. Yeah, just, let's just generally say pedophile. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and even though things, you know, people courted younger back then, 11 was not his game. Right. <laughs> so it's not true. Pocahontas actually um, married a widower named John Rolfe. Uh, she died when she was about 21. She did help. She did introduce oh, yeah. the, the colonists to her, her tribe. Yeah. The the thing is, and, and like she did play a role in saving Jamestown. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she didn't fall in love with Captain John Smith. No, and thanks to modern times, we have things like anthropology and forensic science and archaeology and uh, people coming out, like uh, the Deep Throat, Mark Felt, finally revealing, I was Deep Throat. Or I don't think he revealed himself, though, did he? No, he was uncovered, I believe. Yeah, documents becoming declassified. Like as time marches on, and we get a little bit more modern, yeah, we we get the facts more correct. Uh, again, with declassified information, um, you know, if something's a secret, it can't be part of history. Right. But then once it's declassified, these things definitely have an effect on history, an impact on history. CIA did give LSD to unwitting Americans. Yeah. Um, the Star Wars program did very much help usher in the end of the Cold War. Yeah. All of these come from declassified documents that show, yeah, this this actually happened this way. So yeah. Go back and rewrite. They the really had books. alien autopsies in Area 51. Right. Right. I saw it on TV. Did you hear that um, Mulder and Scully are down for making another movie? Oh, are they? Don't know if it'll happen, but I mean, if well, they're both game, yeah. Why not? Especially her. Yeah, and we're about due for the 90s to come back in vogue, so... You just looked at your Fitbit. (laughs) Things aren't working. Or does it have a clock on there? No. Oh, okay. It just shows I don't have 4,000 steps yet today. But you just tapped it so it thinks you're walking. (laughs) I'm just shaking my wrist (laughs) the whole time. Sit around and tap it and watch TV. Uh, Because there's nothing like cheating yourself out of exercise. Out of health. (laughs) Um, So, like we said, updating biographies and, more importantly... Uh, for me, textbooks is a big part of this, um, but it's not so easy. It's not like, hey, let's just throw in a new chapter uh, on Jefferson. Um, you have to actually go through quite a process. Uh, scholars and researchers, uh, you know, the first they develop these theories and thesis, they publish them. They're reviewed by academics and teachers. Mm-hmm. Uh, textbook authors meet at conferences and see the new recommendations. It's a kind of a long, involved process to to make a substantial change in a textbook. Right. Uh, and there's an actual Institute for International Textbook Research that analyzes all this stuff and makes sure that textbooks are diversified and uh, don't just tell the history of, you know, wealthy white dudes. Right, exactly. This is ideal. This is the ideal process. Yeah. There's another really big um, factor in this that we've talked about before where the biggest states or the states with the most students and therefore buy the most textbooks yeah. are the ones who ultimately get to write the textbooks, which is why Texas has such yeah, a, an outsized uh, influence on what the rest of the country learns right. because they write the textbooks and the publishers aren't going to make different textbooks for each state. Yeah. They're going to make them for the biggest state and then go sell them to the rest of the state. So there are flaws in this process, in, in, including that 
there's also, you know, it's, it doesn't keep up in real time very well. No, you can't just economically, you can't publish a new textbook every year. Right. Uh, I think they try to have about a 10 year life right. on a textbook. But it's I a mean, long time. can't they just email history teachers and be like, hey, on page 42, yeah. <laughs> it says that Jefferson did not have kids with Sally Hemings. Yeah. Don't teach that part. Teach the opposite. Yeah. And I wonder, I'm sure it varies from county to county. I wonder how much freedom teachers have to develop their own curriculum. I know there's standards, but I wonder how much I, I they know. can do their own thing. I'm under the impression there isn't teaching any longer. Like all, all this is a moot point <laughs> when we're talking about textbooks. That's not true. Uh, sorry, sorry, teachers. <laughs> I just realized how many of you listen to this. No, and you weren't saying that in spiteful way. You're saying that like it's sad that yes, exactly. Teaching is you know it's tough to get teachers these days. Thank you. It's Chuck. almost like a public service, you know. What teaching? These days, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think it always has been. You think? Yeah, I think that the constraints put on teachers has really tied their hands to the point where they aren't able to teach like they should or like they want to. Yeah. But I think it remains a public service. I just think our education system is in need of some real reform. Well, it is. And it's sad that I think a lot of teachers these days, too, it, treat it like a public service. And, and it's not bad, but I'm saying sometimes teachers these days will be like, you know, I'm going to go teach for four or five years because people are in need of teachers, not necessarily I want to be a teacher for my entire career. Yeah. And what they're finding out is this generation is going to be short on teachers because people are teaching for a shorter amount of time. You know what? I'm interested in this, and we should do an episode on that. But in the meantime, we're going to do a pre-listener mail call-out okay. and ask for any teachers out there who are in there on the front lines, Yeah, email us and tell us what can be done to solve the problems with the public school system, whether it's easy, complex, whatever. Yeah. We, I, I'm very curious. And totally down to help in any way we, we can. can. You know? Um. All right, so where were we? Textbooks. Sometimes they'll publish. <laughs> yeah. um, sometimes they'll publish supplemental material that's like not every ten years, just to get things right. Right. Um, yeah, because ten years is a long time to go between discovering acceptance of a new historical fact and teaching it to to kids. Yeah, that's too long. But people got up in arms. The American Historical Association um submitted its, its or updated its national history standards in 1994 yeah. for textbooks and they got negative feedback because they were like well where's daniel boone and who's this harriet tubman yeah. why is she getting so much attention a black woman <laughs> unbelievable yeah so even when they get it right they, they still get, get guffed it's a it's a really good point it's a good segue to the negativism yeah um even when it's true it's still going to encounter resistance yeah Part of it is that people hang on to their national pride, their national story, stuff they learned as a kid. Yeah. People are fearful of new things sure. and change. Um, but what does that mean about it, me, you know? Exactly. Like, uh, I, I dress like Daniel Boone and go out in public. So what, <laughs> what happens if everybody doesn't know who Daniel Boone is and I just look like a weirdo? Yeah. Um, but another part of it is because of the bad name that revisionism has, has been given yeah. by hacks and crackpots over the years. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I remember in 2003, uh, President Bush used the term uh, revisionist histor- historians yeah. talking about the media uh, and their coverage of the war in Iraq, basically saying that, you know, some reporters are questioning the reasons that we invaded Iraq and 
had sway over the public's opinion about this. Right. And a the, lot of historians crazy for the media to have. Yeah. And a lot of the historians weren't too keen on that. You know, like, hey, you shouldn't really say that. Yeah. Because that's kind of knocking studying history, the academic field of history. Or the fact that history is able to be revised. He was he was making it a negative thing. Yeah. Same with um Florida. Apparently in two thousand six they uh outlawed the teaching of any postmodernist or revisionist history. <laughs> And kids were only allowed to learn the facts, which is number one In impossible. <laughs> yeah, and number two, um, it says implicitly that revisionist history is not facts, and what's the opposite of facts? Well, lies. Yeah, man, that's sad. It is because it's basically saying we refuse to progress. Yeah. I will not progress, not only in bad stuff, but in good stuff, too. Yeah. No. We are quite happy with that whole post-war age of consensus thing. We're going to stay right there. Yeah. So, rest of the country, rest of the world, you go progress without us. Yeah. Well, that's it's crazy. It is crazy. You just can't do that. You can't dig in your heels and, and thwart history. It just won't happen. Yeah. You look like you're on the wrong side of history. <laughs> That's going to be one of our new T-shirts. Yeah. With you, like, pointing. Right. Uh, one reason, though, revisionist history has negative connotations because people wrongly tie it to things like Holocaust deniers. That is not revisionist history. That is called negationism. Right. And it's not the same thing. No. So if you know someone who says, well, the Holocaust didn't happen, they're not revising history. They're crackpots. Yeah. <laughs> and probably a troll, too. Yeah. Um yeah, so you can just kind of remove the whole Holocaust denial from revisionist history. Yes. The problem is in the public image, those two things go very much hand in hand. Yeah. Same with conspiracy theories. Oh, uh, yeah. But Conger kind of gives this little uh, thumbnail handy-dandy guide to separating the wheat from the chaff as far as revisionist history goes. So if you're encountering something like a moon landing conspiracy yeah or uh kennedy assassination conspiracy you have to ask yourself number one is this a professional historian or an amateur historian is it on a blog <laughs> yeah that's a good one uh is this historian um out for the truth or fame and money so is it just sensationalized right um and we ran into something like we almost did the 1421 article about did the chinese beat columbus yeah that's a good example of somebody who is a a historian i don't i think his name's Gavin Menzies. But it was just a theory. Yeah, and there's like all this really tiny crumbs of circumstantial evidence right. here or there that um, the Chinese did beat Columbus to the New World. The problem is, at this moment, it is just a crackpot theory. He has almost nothing to back it up. Yeah, is he looking just to sell books? He sold a bunch of books. Wow, that's a pretty red, pretty big red flag. It is. It is interesting, and you can't say that somewhere down the road. That we won't find that the Chinese did visit the New World before Columbus. Yeah. But as it stands, like, that is so far outside of the mainstream, it's just a crackpot idea at this yeah. point, you yeah. know, that some guy wove into a pretty interesting book. Yeah. And she also points out, which is totally true, that we tend to be more skeptical of revisionist history that's, we have a, feel like we have a stake in. Right. Or are very familiar with, like, maybe I'm resistant to that because I was raised with right. the idea that Columbus discovered the New World. Whereas if I, it was from Ghana. Sure. I'd be like, yeah, maybe the Chinese did do it. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. You know? I couldn't have said it better. Uh, so basically, a very small number of revisionist histories are 
factual or not factual, but accepted as fact in the end. It's just tough to pull off. Yeah. Like Gavin Menzies is another good example of that. Yeah. But here's the thing. Revisionist history, it has a um, unearned bad name, right? It's an actual worried. Well, we're not we're not saying this is a fringe idea that's been brought into the mainstream. This is a mainstream um, part of the study of history. Yeah. Right. Um, that some fringe dwellers have adopted, like here or there. But for the most part, like like revisionist history is a real part of the discipline of history, and it's a good part of it, in my opinion, because yeah. like Conger points out, it levels the playing field. It's inclusive. Like when revisionist history became a thing, history became more inclusive and it started to tell everybody's story. Yeah, I can't wait to hear from historians. They're going to be like, oh, dude, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> or, boy, did you guys screw this up? Yeah, like revisionist <laughs> history is nothing but crackpots. Like where did you get the idea of <laughs> No. Um, so you got any more? I got nothing else. Thank you for... Uh, let me stay all pepped up about this one. You know, I was a history major, and like this is like great stuff. I know. I usually just throw the wet blanket on you. <laughs> uh, that is not true. Uh, since we said uh, wet blanket or Chuck did, yeah, that triggers me to say if you want to learn more about revisionist history, go to the website, type that in the handy search bar, and then since I said handy search bar, we've got kind of a Ru- uh, Rube Goldberg thing going here. Mm-hmm. That triggers uh, listener mail. That's right. I'm going to call this uh, handwriting analysis from a handwriting analyst. Nice. And this is my favorite thing is when I hear from the actual people. Yeah. And they either say, hey, you did a good job or you didn't do such a good job. (laughs) I don't mind those. I was surprised to hear we did so good about the Maori. That was great. Yeah, boy, those Kiwis love a little light shining their way. <laughs> I love it. Uh, hey, guys, just finished the episode on handwriting analysis as I arrived to work as a handwriting analyst, or as we call ourselves, forensic document examiners. Uh, when I got to my car at home and saw the title of the episode, I had already begun a mental checklist about the misconceptions you might pass on about the field. Um, boy, that's a negative. <laughs> uh, I have to deal with them all the time. However, I'm delighted to say you guys absolutely nailed it! Exclamation point. I don't have a single criticism or correction in this case. Uh, each lab has its own specialty, but at the Homeland Security Investigations Forensic Laboratory where I work, we specialize in travel and identity documents. Uh, most of my work is determining if certain passports, green cards, driver's licenses, and visas are counterfeit or altered, but I'm trained to do handwriting examinations as well. Uh, I spent months of my training in handwriting and it is not for everyone, let me say. Uh, it is a difficult task. It takes a lot of natural ability to accomplish. Uh, the first thing we did in training was to take a form blindness test to make sure we had that natural ability. Uh, before I started the job I have now, though, I actually worked for the Secret Service on the FISH database that you mentioned. Uh, FISH is a lot like AFIS for handwriting. Uh, the Secret Service processed a lot of anonymous threat letters, and I would put them into the database to see if I could come up with any matches. You could probably imagine how fun it was to find a hit. Uh, there were a few times this happened for me during the year I worked there, and uh, it always amazed me how well the system worked. Right. And that is from Jordan, the handwriting analyst. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. I like hearing from the actual people, too. It's great. Thanks, Jordan. Yeah, thanks a lot, Jordan. Um, well, let's see. We already asked for it, but I think it bears asking for again. If you are a teacher and you have some ideas about how to 
fix the cracks and flaws of the public education system Mm -hmm. or education system in general, we want to hear about it. You can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on uh, Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at Discovery.com. And you can join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold-pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.